We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. I feel the pressure of time because I have to hang out with friends this afternoon and it's gifted. Oh, you poor thing. It gets. <laughs> <laughs> not the fuck up. I, <laughs> All right. Well, let's get going. Uh, <laughs> hello. Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books we read as kids. And on this episode, we conclude the His Dark Materials trilogy with The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman, a.k.a. the book where... Pullman remembers he's writing a fantasy epic. <laughs> and God, what a disaster it is. Not to start the whole podcast with a rant, but uh well, I guess I would call it a hot take, except it's just objectively true. But I'm gonna start by saying that Philip Pullman is a bad writer. Is he the worst writer we've read for this podcast? Yes, he is the worst writer <laughs> we've read for this podcast. What? Well, Stephanie Mayer, Austin, uh, Clive. No, Clive's a good. Clive writer. is a very good writer. He just he has his uh, issues, pitfalls, but as a writer, he's very good. I will make this argument later, probably after the summary, but I do think that he can write a pretty sentence. But when it comes to storytelling, boy, is he found wanting. So I think we can take that to mean that your previous childhood impression of this being a good book, you no longer are aligned with your childhood self. Indeed. I, uh, and I have thoughts about that. I have thoughts about why, as a child, I thought this book was good. I mean, I, again, The Subtle Knife was my favorite book of the series, and it's this book is not as bad as The Subtle Knife, mm -hmm. but I think it's pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I have thoughts about that. What did you think? <laughs> right. So as I've, as I've previously <laughs> talked about, my like, biggest memory from this book is the ending, just sobbing my little heart out. And I will say, I did not cry reading it this time. So mm. that's kind of an issue. I, I agree. I think it's better than The Subtle Knife. And I actually think, I'm not sure if I've gone on this rant on the podcast before, but I have a special issue with multi-POV stories mm -hmm. because I generally find, this is very rarely not the case for me, that I enjoy like certain POVs obviously more than others. I think that's a natural human thing. We gravitate towards certain voices. And so if you have a multi-POV story, which to be fair, this sort of isn't, it's just following different plot lines. Like the narrator, the sort of POV remains the same, but we'll go with it. Multi-plot line, multi-POV, whichever, yeah. whatever. I just think that a lot of times it can reduce one's enjoyment of the book because you spend the chapters where you're with the characters you're less interested in, just waiting to get back to the characters you are interested in. And I think that this book definitely suffers from that because there were just certain plot lines and characters that were so vastly more interesting than the others <laughs> that like, 
I'm mad I wasn't with them. <laughs> I, you know what? And I'm going to stand by this. If this book was just about Lord Azriel and Mrs. Coulter, I would give it five stars. <laughs> I had such a fun time in their chapters. Really enjoyed the book in those moments. And there were moments I enjoyed with the other characters as well, but just my interest in their plotline was vastly higher <laughs> than, like, everyone else. And so, like, that that part of the book is, like, five stars for me, but the rest of it is just kind of middling to not good. So <laughs> I think that's an issue. And it's an issue, to be fair, a lot of writers run into. They don't know how to craft, like, a story that is interesting through multiple POVs or storylines that is is interesting throughout and isn't just like, this is A plus and this is like a C, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. That was kind of my feeling going into this. I think I found it, I definitely found it less confusing than I remember finding it as a kid. But again, I was reading it on a car drive with waning light, <laughs> reading it as fast as I could to try and finish before the light left. So I don't think... It was actually that I couldn't comprehend it. I think it's just that I was rushing. And to be fair, I was rushing a little bit on this reread too because this book is 518 pages. That's the longest book we've had for this podcast, I think. If if we're counting the Lord of the Rings as separate books. If we're counting the Lord of the Rings as one book, which we are not, that would be the longest. But if we're counting it as separate books, I'm pretty sure this is the longest book in terms of at least page count. But... It really, um, the pacing of this book and the series as a whole is something that I'm sure we'll discuss because, uh, that certainly was not crafted well. God awful. Terrible. <laughs> horrific pacing. Just some of the worst pacing I've ever read in a book. Bad, terrible, no good, bad writing. So. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I do want to piggyback on what what you're saying about the point of view, the shifting point of view, because it's not so much that it's shifting chapter to chapter. It's shifting within chapters multiple times. It bounces back and forth between multiple characters in any given chapter. It's unfortunate because, personally, I did not care for the Asriel Mrs. Coulter <laughs> plot in this book. In fact, it had one of the most accidentally comical moments in this book for me, or at least I think it I was have accidental. As to what? Yes. <laughs> um, I actually preferred the Lyra Will plot line, but I say that with a huge caveat that it kept getting bogged down because when Lyra would do something or Will would do something, the book would immediately jump into the other person's point of view and have that person give some commentary on what Will or Lyra just did. And usually that commentary was something of the, along the lines of, I got a boner watching him. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm not joking. I mean, the, these two kids are just so horny for each other for this entire book. And it got so... They are very horny for each other. It got so exasperating. Just reading the same things of like, and Lyra's heart fluttered when Will frowned and Will 
was pleased when Lyra smiled. It's just like, oh, God. Anyway, I... <laughs> Shall I get into the summary? <laughs> yes, please do. I am using a Wikipedia for help on this one because I wanted to keep this short. And so I'm not going to be reading off of Wikipedia, but we are keeping it shorter, quicker. I might not mention some characters because they're not important. There are these characters yeah. called the Gillespians that are introduced that are tiny people who spy on uh-huh. like people for Lord Azrael. And they're two of them end up hanging out with Will and Lyra for most of the book. And for the life of me, I'm not entirely sure what the point of having them there is. I think they do a couple small things to help out, but like generally they don't do much. So, you know, we're just going to probably not mention them again. There you go. It's because it's a fantasy and you have to have fantastical creatures in a fantasy. Yep. (sighs) Anyhow, so we open on Mrs. Coulter and Lyra. Uh, Mrs. Coulter has hidden them away back in their own world in a small little cave near a village. She's pretending to be a holy woman whose daughter has been cursed. And she is keeping Lyra asleep by feeding her some kind of potion that basically keeps her comatose. Will is attempting to go find her. He has these two angels that were trying to take him to Lord Asriel. And unlike the cliffhanger at the end of the last book, which implied he was going to go with them, he's like, nah, I'm not going with you until we go get Lyra. The angels are called uh, Balthamos and Baruch, and they are very in love with each other and good for them. So they set off to go find Lyra. Along the way, they are attacked by an angel who then calls on Metatron the archangel known as the regent to come and get Will and the angels. Will manages to kill the first angel and escapes with uh, Balthamos and Baruch into another world where they tell him sort of about angel hierarchy that like there's (laughs) the authority who is the first angel who came into being and is what like humans think of as God except He didn't actually create anyone. He just kind of took credit because he was there and he could. But he is kind of withdrawn into himself and uh, the regent Metatron is really taken over. Baruch goes off to tell this information to Asriel and Balthamos stays with Will to try and get him to Lyra. Baruch ends up getting killed, but not before he can tell Asriel everything that's going on. And Balthamos, through their like sacred bond, can feel that he's dead and starts getting like very flaky because he's grieving, which, you know, makes sense. Along his way, uh, Will runs into Yorick Byronson <laughs> and the bears. <laughs> they are now traveling to the mountains in Asia because the basically polar caps are, are melting because of uh, the gateway Lord Azra opened. This has basically caused global warming. So they're going to find these mountains to stay in until things can get fixed and they can go back to the poles. I should mention that York also found out from Seferina Pecola that Lee Scoresby was dead. uh, And then he went, found his body, and (laughs) ate it. (laughs) I just want that on the record. 
He's like, I'll get revenge for you, bud. Your body will strengthen me as I seek vengeance. One of the unintentional bits of comedy in this book. I get what Pullman was going for, but it's just so funny. He literally eats his friend. Like, yeah, he that's and he's like, he I know Lee would want this for me. <laughs> um. Oh, God. Uh, but yeah, so Will manages to impress Yorick by what, first volunteering to fight him and then proving that his knife is super sharp. So good for Will. Um, and one of the actual funniest fights, at least for me, is this moment where Yorick's like, oh, I want to see the knife. And he's like, I'm not showing this to anyone, but York Byronson, blah, blah, blah. Like, I can't tell anything about my quest or anything to York Byronson. And then York's like, I am York Byronson. And Will's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. What the f*** was that? It's so stupid. I know. <laughs> Anyhow. Oh, God. It was really funny. So they travel together to find Lyra, and with the help of a girl from the local village, they're able to get Lyra away from Mrs. Coulter. But at the, like while they're getting her away, Mrs. Coulter's hideout is also under attack from one the church and to Lord Azrael. Lord Azrael's trying to get his kid back because he's found out Lyra actually means something. He literally mm. has this moment where he's talking to his demon, and he's like. Have I made a mistake? Because I went through the portal and I literally never thought about her again. <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord Asriel. Best father on the planet. Indeed. But uh, Lord Asriel's people end up taking Mrs. Coulter captive. The church is thwarted in their mission. Will and Lyra escape, except they now have these two Gillespian spies with them that have little to no purpose. But during the escape, Will does actually shatter the subtle knife because he goes to cut between worlds and then he thinks of his mother and the knife shatters. Kabloomers. But luckily, York Byronson just happens to be there to help him <laughs> reforge the knife. <laughs> and you could tell this is a plot contrivance because right afterwards, York's like, we shouldn't have come to these mountains. We're going to go back to the poles. <laughs> like, they, <laughs> this was just so Philip Pullman could get him in the same place. Um. It's, oh I should God. also mention that one of the plot lines that is going alongside this is, one, the church has sent an assassin to hopefully kill Lyra, but more of his mission is to track down the tempter, the serpent, a.k.a. Mary Malone. <laughs> so this uh, church guy, Father Gomez, is set off to be an assassin. And Mary Malone has gone through worlds. She's traveled through Specterland into another world, where she hangs out with these creatures called the Mufala, or Mulef, Mulefa, Mulefa? Malefa is how I pronounced it in my head. Whatever they are. And they're like creatures with trunks that ride on these seed pods. I will say, I actually liked the world building and stuff in these sections. It was just like, didn't really... The book was very bloated in terms of length. Yes. And so as much as I probably would have liked these chapters in another book, in this book, I was kind of like, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, these these chapters in particular probably drag the most out of all the chapters just because we focus on the most inane events possible. 
There's like a whole chapter devoted to Mary climbing a tree. Yeah. I mean, it's cool because like she's doing basically like scientific investigation to find out more about dust and like the the mufala can like see dust and interact with it and and it's it is very cool theoretically it just doesn't work within the context of this book yeah but that's what she's doing and uh i'm just gonna ignore what's happening with her until it becomes relevant again (laughs) (laughs) but know that she's just doing that in the background during all this yeah so Will and Lyra are reunited and Lyra wakes up. I should mention that it's like at least 100 pages into the book before Lyra wakes up. Our main character has been passed the f*** out for a fifth of Mm, the book. Yeah. And this whole time Lyra's been having this dream about the land of the dead and Roger and she's like, Will, we have to go to the land of the dead because I failed in my promise to Roger and I have to tell him I'm sorry. And that's clearly the most important thing for us to do in the world right now. And Will's like, yeah, I do kind of want to see my dad, so let's go. I think the subtle knife can cut into the land of the dead. Oh, God. So they decide to do that. So they cut into the land of the dead and go off there. And um, in order to actually, like, get in, they have to cross. Like, there's a, a f- what's the word? A boatman? Like, a guy with a ferry to take them across this, like, body of water to get to the land of the dead. It's very Greek. And he's like, you can come, but you have to leave your demons outside. And Lyra's like, no, but she does it anyways. <laughs> and both Will and the two Gillespians also feel like they are leaving something. They're like, they're being torn away from it. And it's this horrible, I will say this scene was actually quite moving, at least to me, like the image of Pan sitting there crying for Lyra. It was was sad. (laughs) But they do it to get into the land of the dead. And uh, in the land of the dead, there are harpies who can tell when you're lying and telling the truth. And Lyra tries to lie to them. And they're like, liar, liar, liar. Shut up, bird. And then Lyra can't lie anymore. And (laughs) there's also just a bunch of dead people. Not really doing anything. It's just kind of like a bleak, unhappy landscape. I mean, again, it's very Greek. It's very, like, the areas that aren't, uh, like, Elysian. Is Elysian Fields the awesome part or the, like, crappy yeah, part? And I'm forgetting my Greek mythology. paradise part of the underworld. Yeah. They're stuck in the non-paradise part, it seems like. <laughs> Except there is no paradise part. Indeed. I guess, I mean, I'm not a Greek aficionado, so I guess this is, like, the Hades kind of part? Was there, like, a... Different part for... No, so Hades is the entire underworld. Okay. But there's the... One sec, I'm just gonna... (laughs) Yeah, so there's Elysium, which is the cool part. And then there's... Oh, here we go. This is... I was mixing up the two. So there's the Asphodel... Asphodel? Gosh sake, watch your language. Asphodel Meadows? I've never said this word out loud in my life, and I'm sorry. (laughs) But that's where basically ordinary souls are sent. And it's just this land of, like, total just, like, neutrality and nothingness. And they just kind of, like, have nothing to do. But not in, like, a fun way. It's just, yeah. like, boring sitting. Imagine, if you will, back in high school when you were waiting after school, waiting for your parents to pick you up. All your friends were gone. You're just sitting there by yourselves doing nothing. Bored out of your minds. It's basically that, but for eternity. 
So that's basically what this underworld <laughs> looks like. Um, this land of the dead. Everyone's really bored there. Lyra does find Roger. Huzzah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, this is just how it is. It kind of sucks. But I don't blame you, Lyra. She's like, cool. <laughs> and then they, Will and Lyra, come up with a plan to help basically cut a door so that the dead people can leave the land of the dead. Okay. And it turns out if they leave the land of the dead... I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just... I have to interrupt very quickly because there's a very important bit of information that Lyra reveals that made me so god angry. Oh, yes. I know which part you're going to talk about. <laughs> Recall, listeners, when I said in the last episode for The Subtle Knife how it would have been cool if Lyra discovered that she had a destiny and had to grapple with that. <laughs> she did indeed know that she had a destiny and she tells Roger that she knew all along she had a destiny and she suspected that she had to go to the land of the dead for some reason as part of her destiny. And then, and then it never gets addressed again. And that's it. Yeah. So basically what she says is that when she was like at the witch's house in the first book, not the witch's house, the like witch console's house, and he had her go pick the little branch she came back early enough to hear him and Father Coram talking and overheard that she had a destiny and that she couldn't know what her destiny was or she would pick it up. So she's like, I deliberately have not asked anyone, like not even the alethiometer, about what my destiny is to not pick it up. And she's like, but now that I'm here, I think that my destiny is to free the dead people. And Roger's like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So it seems that Lyra truly believes, like we are given no indication going forward that she believes her destiny is anything other than freeing the dead people, which she does. She and Will end up cutting a hole so that the dead people can escape land of the dead. And once they leave, they dissolve basically the way demons do when they die and become one with the matter of the universe, as they were meant to do before the authorities started caging them up. Will and Lyra also strike a deal with the Harpies because it turns out they can be nourished by the truth. So they're like, if you guide the souls when they come to the underworld to this doorway and free them, the in exchange, the soul has to tell you their life story and they need to have lived like a full satisfying life in order to like, go. they make an exception for babies. They're like, we'll just take the babies since they didn't have a shot. I was like, that's nice. I actually did like that because, like, babies get screwed over in Catholicism. And it's nice that Philip Pullman was like, I'm going to specifically address the babies. <laughs> I was like, good for you, Phil. I, I cannot disagree more. I just think it's so... These harpies are literal monsters. And they're just, like, apparently reasonable enough to realize that, like, babies wouldn't fit in this... Whatever. Yeah, did I love it from a storytelling point of view? No. Did I love it from a Philip Pullman being like, you Catholic Church? Yes, I did. I did. Sometimes when he gives the middle finger, I'm just like, um, nice. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, you're obnoxious. But, you know, it really depends on the day, <laughs> the moment. Anyhow, but no, it is super abrupt within the actual text because they're just like talking, they're making this deal and they're like, We'll give the babies a pass. <laughs> and I was like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. But anyhow, so 
while all this has been happening in the land of the dead and the land of the living, uh, Lord Azrael and his troops have been like making plans. They know about the whole Eve situation now. They've got Mrs. Coulter. She's like informing them on stuff, but also like clearly has plots of her own going on. And she manages to escape them and go back to the magisterium where she discovers that they've made this bomb that they can essentially like link to Lyra like through it seems like sympathetic sort of magic where like if they use a lock of her hair and then they use the energy of slicing someone from their demon they can then make this bomb go off where Lyra is sort of. Mrs. Coulter and uh one of the Gillespians who tagged along with her work to thwart this and they're able to interfere enough that one Mrs. Coulter doesn't get cut with from her demon which was their initial plot but like down in the underworld that gives uh, Lee Scoresby and <laughs> uh, Grumman slash John Perry <laughs> oh. time to be like, ah, yes, I, John Perry, with my shaman magic, know about this bomb. We'll use your knife to cut off the strand of hair that Mrs. Coulter had taken that then was used for the bomb from the roots so that, anyhow, the point is, the bomb goes off, but Lyra is safe. Mrs. Coulter is rescued again by Lord Azrael. They discover that the children's demons have escaped into the land where Azrael is. And they're like, we need to defend these demons because the regent and his forces are trying to get the demons. Because if they can get the demons, they can control Will and Lyra. It's so funny, actually. It's sort of like a giant game of hide and seek where everyone's trying to find the demons. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite humorous. Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael have a conversation I really like somewhere in there. And then uh, Mrs. Coulter makes this plan where she's like, gonna escape again. <laughs> and gonna go up to the kingdom of heaven and seduce Metatron. Oh my. And convince him to like come fight Azrael one on one. She make, manages to trick Metatron into going down where Lord Azrael is hunting for Lyra, uh, basically where the bomb has gone off. It's created this, like, giant kind of this thing. And he's, like, down there looking for Lyra, but he and Mrs. Coulter use their, like, evil, morally gray <laughs> energies <laughs> to, like, yeah, plot to trick the regent into coming down. And then they fight him together, and then all three of them throw themselves off. Well, I mean, Metatron doesn't throw himself off. They throw themselves off with him to take him down into the pit and destroy all three of them. Huzzah. Huzzah. For Lyra. (laughs) Guess they were maybe good parents after all. Uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was, we'll talk about them. Anyhow, Will and Lyra escape from the land of the dead. They join in this like giant ruckus of everyone looking for the demons and fighting and shenanigans happen but eventually they and their demons are able to escape off into the world where mary malone is surprise surprise and so they are like remarkably unconcerned about all the chaos they left behind like york byronson was there again like i think there were witches there there was like so much going on and they're just like well we're fine now they watched people die so (laughs) yeah and they're just like oh well and there's just like Oh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Anyhow, so Mary's like, come, rest, relax, chill. They're like, okay. She talks to them a little. Like, they have some conversations. And in one of them, she talks about why she stopped being a nun. And it turns out it's because she, like, thought this guy was hot and wanted to f*** him. <laughs> Which, again, good for her. 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's so stupid. Yeah. I, I'll get more into yeah. Pullman's kind of I will rhetoric too. surrounding religion. I just it. Oh god, nails on the chalkboard. Yeah. Yeah. I think I might owe you another apology too because <laughs> I think I argued for his stance being more about growing and maturing as a human being as opposed to just sexual growing and maturing, but he's kind of made it clear in the past couple of books that it is really all about sexual growing and maturing. So I think I have to say you were right. No, you don't. Uh, you don't. If he'd done it my way, it would have been cooler and better. I agree. But he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I will not accept your apology because I do not think you have anything to apologize for. I think in that instance that you argue, I don't know if our listeners even remember this, but back in the first episodes for the first book here of this series, we argued about, you know what, actually, I, I'm too tired to even <laughs> bother. If you want to go listen to it, go listen to it. But the point is, it was about sex after all. And the books suffer for it. Yeah. This is further proved when, uh, yeah, Will and Lyra go out the next day to hunt down their demons and then end up basically, you know, confessing their feelings for each other and, um, you know, fade to black. We don't know what happens. Could be anything, but it's certainly a physical display of romantic slash sexual love if we're conflating the two. And Philip Pullman is. So there you go. And that's uh, what is uh, the fall of Eve. Uh, so <laughs> Lyra does that. She and Will bang. And the dust returns to the universe correctly. And, you know, blah, blah. Because, <laughs> like, it was flowing the wrong way this whole time. But the power of these two, two, two children getting it on is a strong enough for, force to reverse the flow of dust and save the world. But uh, shortly after, uh, they discover from basically suffering a Pegola shows up and she's like cool the Egyptians are on their way in a couple of days um she's talking to their demons because their demons are now you know separate from them still roaming around and she's like and you have to talk to the children about some stuff and it all comes out that essentially you can't live in a world that's not your own for very long mm -hmm. that's part of why John Perry was like not doing so well as he'd been out of his world for 10 years and it's just not good for you and two, the world holes that the subtle knife yeah. makes um, are causing this sort of leak of dust from the universe, which is bad for it. So they need to close up all of those and break the knife so that people can stop cutting into other worlds. And there's enough to leave one hole, like box open, but of course they ne that needs to be for the people, the dead people to get out. So, essentially, Will and Lyra are put in a situation where, like, they cannot be together unless one of them wants to die really young. And they must go back to their separate worlds. So, this is obviously very agonizing for them. But they decide to do the right thing and live full lives. And then they're like, and when we die, our, like, matter will entwine in the universe, bruh. <laughs> Romance. <laughs> So they say very teary goodbyes, and then Will goes back to his world with Mary alone, and she's like, we're friends for life now, bud. I'll help you with your mom. We'll figure this shit out. Let's drink some tea. 
That's literally how their story concludes in this book. Very British. And then, yeah, Lyra goes back to uh, Jordan College in Oxford, and it looks like she meets one of those female scholars from the first book again, and she's like, oh, she doesn't actually suck. And uh, it looks like she might end up going to to school there. But before that, um, Will and Lyra had made an agreement that on... Midday at midsummer every year, they'll meet at the same place because there's this uh, branch in the Botanic Gardens in each version of Oxford, and they'll both just sit there and for one hour, once a year, be in the same place, if in separate worlds, with each other. That's how the book ends. I think that was a shorter it summary. It was incredibly short. Go I me. like how how you used every other word to describe the... I think you what described it as world holes to to describe <laughs> I remember the world the doors I I would just call them doors I can't remember the word <laughs> I guess they're little baby portals I just I couldn't think of the right word for them I mean I call them doors <laughs> but they're not exactly doors they're like entryways into different worlds I get it but it is I do like they're the term They're little squares in the air I like the term world I think they call holes. them windows Windows Yeah <laughs> I think That's they call them they windows call them. Well world windows Morgan why oh why does Pullman insist on wasting our time Why god why no god. No god. Well, oh, I forgot no the god part where them. they killed God. Well, they didn't kill God. He kind of just died. I mean, yeah. Basically, Metatron sends God the authority off in like a box to contain him because he's so old. He's like gonna scatter into pieces at the slightest gust of wind, <laughs> and then. His box gets attack- attacked by Kate or by Cliff Gas. And then Will and Lyra find him. And are like, this poor guy's stuck in the box. Let's let him out. And they let him out and he just dissolves into the air. There's also an amazing moment earlier that I guess foreshadowing is would be generous if it was subtle, but it's not. There's an earlier moment where is it Baruch? But I don't know how to pronounce his name. Baruch, Baruch. The angel gets to Asriel to tell him the very important information. And he's like, I'm dying. I must tell you the most vital of all information. And let me take 15 pages to tell it while I'm dying. (gasps) It's the longest dying monologue I've ever heard. But anyway, it's so funny because literally Asriel's servant or whatever walks into the room and it causes a slight breeze to go through and the angel just <laughs> fucking dies as a result. Yep. <laughs> it's so stupid. To me, it feels like so inconsistent with the way these angels were depicted in the subtle knife where they're this kind of otherworldly. It wasn't clear what their nature was, but they there's something ancient and untouchable about them. And then you get to this book, and they're just like the dumbest, biggest drama queens. It's mm-hmm. so lame. And then there's like this, we also learned that apparently Baruch, I'm just going to call him Baruch. I'm sorry if that's not how his name's actually pronounced. Where Baruch apparently used to be a human, 
But then when he died, he became an angel. And we learned that's not what happens with most humans. We see that. But it's never explained why he becomes an angel. He just becomes an angel, I guess, through the power of, of love. I don't, awesome. I, I don't know what it is. Like, that element, because it's, it's a gay relationship between Baruch and Balthasar. I can't remember his name. Balthamos? That, sure. And it feels like one of those 90s things where it's like, we're progressive. We're, we're progressive. We have a gay couple in our book. Isn't that progressive? Oh, they're dead. Oh, they're dead. Oh, yeah. Balthamos ends up killing the assassin that is sent for Mary. Oh, right. And then he <laughs> lets himself die. There you go. That's what happens yeah, to him. Yeah, so they die. And then it's, I don't. Kill your gays. Kill your gays. Or bury your gays, I guess, is the actual yeah. trope. It's a trope. That yes, barrier gaze is a trope that often happened in 90s, early 2000s media. I mean, it happened before then and has after that, too. But that's really when it became codified, which is the idea that you could have a gay couple or a lesbian couple or whatever, a non-hetero couple yeah. in your media. But then one of them obviously had to die. And so this is very much that. We find out that these two guys, these two angels are identify as male. And are in love. And then, like, 40 pages later, <laughs> Baruch is dead. <laughs> yeah. If that, it might be even shorter. So, yes, bury your gaze is a trope. We are not actually advocating that you kill gay people or gay characters. <laughs> so, please don't. God, this book is a me- I don't even know where to start. I, I- well, Start with your rant about how Philip Pullman's a bad writer. Oh, right, of course. So yeah, We were promised uh, the rant. Yes, there is a rant. Uh, writing is a very hard thing to do. There are some writers who kind of have some natural inherent talent to, as I said before, spin a pretty sentence. And Philip Pultman definitely has that ability. There are some pretty sentences in this book. But there's also other aspects of storytelling that are just as important every story basically boils down to and then this happens and then this happens etc etc until the book ends good writers are able to manipulate that and write stories that sound more like and then this happened which led to this happening which forced the characters to reflect on this which led them to do this action, which caused this other character to behave in this way. And they have a natural sense of when a story should slow down and really take its time with something, and when it should speed up, whether it's for action or just like, this is a necessary thing to happen to explain how characters get from point A to point B, but we're just going to take a shortcut because it's not as interesting as other parts. Clearly, Philip does not have that ability. And this book is... <laughs> oh, God, this book kills me. There are so many questions. I just kept a <laughs> running tally of questions I had. And I'm going to read them. And I'm sorry, it's a lot. But these are just some of the questions I had regarding this book and the events taking place in this book. 
how did the angels find out that the authority wasn't actually God? Why is the authority keeping ghosts in prison camps? Why do ghosts exist? Why do people become ghosts but demons don't? Do the Panzerborn have ghosts? Why are some creatures touched by dust and others are What's not? What's required to be touched by Who dust? Who decides? Is it the midichlorians? What happened 30,000 years ago to make the first humans have dust? How do some humans turn into angels? Why don't all humans turn into angels? How did Metatron become more powerful than the Why authority? did he become more powerful when his brother, who also became an angel, remained one of the lowest forms What happens of if a Malefa's claws break? Are they euthanized? How do they travel if they have no ability to use the sea pods? How did the Magisterium build a bomb that could reach Lyra even in the land of the Is dead? Is Lyra technically dead at this point? So why would it affect How does her? John Perry know about the bomb even though he's dead? How did John Perry and Lee Scoresby find each other in the land How of the dead? How does cutting Lyra's hair with a knife protect her from why the bomb? Why has no one else discovered before that the harpies will also feed on truth? What the f is the intention crap? Why does Lyra and Will banging save the universe? Why are they so important? Why not any other age couple banging? Why is Lyra the second Eve? How did are that happen? angels just the stupidest beings in the universe? What are the politics of the authority and the when angels? When moms in Lyra's world give birth to children, do they also give birth to their demons? Or do the demons just appear out of thin air later? At what point does a fetus become a person? Do fetuses have demons? Do stillborns have demons? Who names people's demons? If the angels can take care of the specters, why is it a big deal to leave open in a big uh, second door for Will and Lyra. So those are just uh, some of the questions. Just some oh, yeah. of the questions I, I had. I forgot to mention that every time Will cuts between worlds, not only does he cause death leakage, he also creates a sector. <laughs> That's where the sectors come from. There's just like a whole bunch of things you find out. Instead, what Pullman seems interested in answering are these questions. How does Mary Malone climb a tree? How does Mary Malone create a mirror? When did Mary Malone first have sex? When did Mary Malone first kiss? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> My rage knows no bounds. It just every single moment. We spend pages, pages learning how Mary Malone made the amber spyglass, which might be the most useless object in a book since the silver chair in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. The silver chair at least gave us a really cool scene. That's fair. Like, I'll he give sits you on that. the silver chair. There's the, that's a cool scene. The amber spyglass, I didn't even mention in the summary because it's literally like Mary can see dust through it. She makes yeah. a device through which she can see dust. And she uses this to discover various things about dust. And again, I will say, I do feel like if this was a separate book about like Mary Malone traveling to this other world, discovering these people, like integrating with them, and then discovering that like she has to fix this dust issue and investigating that and like finding answers, I actually think that's a really cool book. I would have been like very happy to read that book. Mm. Yes, it would have been slower paced and stuff, but like it. If it was on its own, it could work. This sort of like slow mystery, but also like a world building of like, you know, living with these people. And, uh, you know, I, I really did like a lot of the elements of the book. I just didn't like it within the context of everything else. And I think, too, I think my biggest issue with the pacing. Well, and actually, with I'm not going to even just say with the pacing, but with kind of how Philip Pullman has constructed this story as a whole is that it feels so constructed. Mm. It is not natural. It is very hard to buy the characters at certain points doing things 
unless he needed them to do things for a story purpose. Again, like, you can so see the cogs. Like, these are his little clockwork toys that he's wound up, and they're going exactly where he wants them to go, regardless of whether it makes sense. I, you know, made little sad comments at various points in the summary. Characters are in places because he's decided they need to be there, and he can't come up with sufficient character motivation to actually get them there, so he's just like, I guess this. And it's really frustrating because we don't really get to see the characters discovering things in a natural way. Like, a lot of the big discoveries happen off screen. You know, the whole, the children get told so much that we don't actually see people discover it. I will say that's at least the nice part about the Mary Malone thing is that she discovers that the little windows are leaking dust and she discovers the dust is flowing the wrong way. We actually get to see her make those discoveries, whereas the children are just told like, ah, yes, the dust is leaking. Ah, yes, this. Ah, yes, you can't stay in other worlds. John Perry's ghost is here to conveniently tell you. You know, it's just like we don't really get to see those discoveries getting made. And it's it's really frustrating because the characters are just so fully motivated by, like, the outside force of the author being like, all right, I'm now going to have Seferina Pekla fly in to tell you some things. <laughs> because you need to know that at this point in the story. And I guess that she off screen kind of found these out from this angel and then the angel will show up later to, like, retell you the same things. I, It's just so, it's so sloppy. And it's like he really didn't put effort into, like, having characters and, and motivations make sense. And I will say, I think that part of why I was drawn to the Azrael Coulter storyline is because I thought their character motivations were more interesting and more natural and made more sense. And to be fair, I think part of that is that it was kept ambiguous what they really wanted or were trying to do. And therefore, it was more interesting because you felt like they could go different ways at any time. Versus like, well, Myra, I got so frustrated by the going to the land of the dead thing. Not the actual going there. Because like, I mean, that's that's a cool plot line. I'm not mad about that happening. But it's just like, oh, Lyra's got to apologize to Roger after she forgot him for a whole book. Very convenient for like her to remember him at this point. I like, was going to say, yeah. It was so frustrating. I was like, okay, so you've decided they have to go to the land of the dead. And instead of like, I don't know, maybe doing some like world building that would have led to that in book two or book one. Instead, it's like, and again, we've talked about the lithiometer too, being this thing that just tells them like what to do. And that's just their kind of, like, get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. And then, again, having, like, Lyra be like, oh, I discovered about the prophecy, and I deliberately didn't ask the lithiometer, and I'm like, oh, that's so... (laughs) It's just, like, you can so clearly see all the mechanics there. It's not natural. It's not believable. And I think that's why I started really disliking the Will and Lyra sections, because everything they were going through felt so plotted and planned in this way that I just couldn't buy into the story anymore. Like, I I couldn't buy them doing things. Not the way I could, like, Mary Malone or Mrs. Coulter or Lord Asriel. I could still buy them doing things. But Will and Lyra at this point were just like, like you said, it was all other people telling them to do things, them randomly deciding to do things because the plot needed them to, or, yeah, them supposedly falling in love but philip pullman doesn't actually know how to write that so (laughs) it's it's very unnatural and that sucked because i really wanted to like them 
and I wanted to like their plot line, but I just at by the end I was like I just can't I just can't like invest myself this in this anymore. And that's why at the end when they had to go their separate ways, it was no longer this big devastating thing for me, which I think if I bought into their relationship, I would have still had that very emotional response, but I just am no longer able to. I think that part of the craft of writing is like Yes, you you plan things out or like you edit to make it look like you plan things out. But like it's disguising that. It's making it seem like this real believable thing that might have happened, you know? Even if it is fantastical. Like it's the illusion <laughs> of a story. Uh the illusion of a reality that might have existed and I just couldn't buy this as a reality that might have existed. And and I'm sorry. I will I'll calm down in a second. But I will say like the funniest thing about it is the whole idea is that, like, that it gets brought up and then, like, not really mentioned again, is that Lyra's destiny is to, like, destroy the mechanics of fate. And so, like, if if Philip Pullman had really leaned into that and been, like, the children are being compelled to go through these motions, everyone is just playing a part that they cannot escape from, really played into that, that it was all leading up to one actual choice. Lyra's one choice, whether or not to hook up with Will, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> but, like, if he had really... I, I emphasized the mechanicalness of it, that they don't have choices, then it could have been really interesting and made that moment, uh, Lyra falling, in essence, so much more interesting and dynamic. But, no, he didn't do that. And he for, kind of forgot about her breaking the wheel of fate or whatever. Yeah. So that's just not brought up again. So, yeah. It's very frustrating. I remember in the last episode, you talked about some interview Pullman did where he said that he'd planned it all out. I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second. Because if he had planned... Or he's just a terrible planner because... He created these characters that in the first book were so alive and vivacious and, and nuanced and just great characters who then turn into these caricatures by this book that are just not interesting. There are so many points in my notes where I just wrote, I miss the old Lyra, which is so mm. ironic because this book is about the wonders of growing up and how we should embrace growing up. But if this is what That's growing the up... the wonders of having sex. Yeah, but if... <laughs> but uh, I... Well, uh, I'm going to just give the books themselves the benefit of doubt. I do think okay. Pullman specifically is talking about sex. And he's writing this pro-sex screed against the church, which is just the worst. But to give the books the benefit of a doubt, the books are saying that growing up or the books want to say that growing up is great and amazing and something we should look forward to, something we should embrace as people. But Lyra, quote unquote, grown up is just such a lame facsimile of her former self. Like there's a line that made me groan, cry rage at the end of the book where she says that she's like sitting on the bench thinking to herself about how will has taught her the value of silence and discretion is 
Pullman, that daft that he literally just wrote for this strong, independent female character, literally just wrote her saying there's value in being silent and discreet. Like, it's mind bogglingly bad. Just the optics of so many different things happening here. And that's because characters are acting out of character. So like when you said how Lyra didn't even consult the alethiometer about her destiny. That's not Lyra. We literally opened the golden compass with Lyra hiding in a wardrobe to listen in on a meeting she was not supposed to attend and learning about information she was not supposed to know about. Suddenly, we're supposed to think that in the middle of the golden compass, Lyra ha- somehow has the, di- the discretion to not ask the alethiometer about her destiny? What? That's remarkably stupid. I'm flabbergasted by this book in so many different ways. And in so many ways how it's just wasting our time with information that doesn't matter and then rushing through things that matter supremely, but it seems like the book doesn't realize it or doesn't care that those things are important to understanding this world, understanding this universe, to understand what's happening and why, and why anything is important. This is really a book that illustrates the value of killing your darlings. Again, we're not saying to actually kill your darlings. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a writing thing. It means to delete those things, those bits of writing that you are absolutely in love with as a writer but don't work for the story. And that is the hardest thing to do because writing is hard. And sometimes you might spend hours perfecting some scene or just, it works so well in your head. But when you get it out onto the page and you see in the larger context, of the story, it just doesn't work. Pullman just kept writing and didn't even bother to delete. It feels in a lot of ways, like a first draft and like Mary Malone's sections especially feel like a first draft because it's setting her up to be this kind of white savior for this world of the Malefa. And I have thoughts about the, I think it's accidental, but the weird racial coding of the Malefa. And I'll get to that later. But there, there's the tree climbing scene. And she's climbing a big old tree to get to the top to see what's going on with the dust with her new amber spyglass which does not matter in the story because Mary Malone doesn't solve anything for anybody. She just uh, is there to tell a sexy story that gets Lyra horny. So there's, there's a part while she's climbing the tree that she's like sitting on a branch and she's relaxed. She's exerted a lot of physical energy and she's feeling good. And it reminds her of that one time dot, 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 when she handled a different kind of wood, if you will. No, okay, wait. <laughs> You've got to do this moment full justice because I read this line and I was like, full had to like pause and be like, Philip, Philip. <laughs> but she climbs up and she talks about how like it feel. It reminds her of like the one other time she'd felt really close to God or like the feeling she used to have of feeling close to God, and she'd only felt this way one time before. And it was not when she swore her vows to become a nun. Oh, right. And I was like, 
Ah. Oh, oh, she was swearing to God in the bedroom. I swear to God. Swear to me. My point is, she she has to figure out how to climb this tree, and there's no climbing gear in this world, so she has to like manufacture a bow and arrow to shoot a rope so that she can use it as a like pulley system. So if she falls, she won't die. And and she's climb, climb, climbing, and she finally gets to the top and makes her discovery and climbs back down and tells the Malefa what's going on. And this is what killed me. This is what made me angry, because then we're told that the Malefa say to Mary, "Hey." We can build you a platform that will bring you up to the tree because the Malefa know how to use pulleys and create pulleys and stuff. So we have like five pages of Mary climbing up a tree and then we find out that the Malefa could have built her something that would have done it in seconds. And it's just this kind of manufactured bullshit. To get to that moment where Mary can remember fondly the one time she had sex in her life, and it's not in service of the story. Being in service of the story would be looking at the dust and saying, something's going on with the dust, let's find out why. <sighs> Again, I called Philip a coward in the last episode, and this book just confirms it because it's such timid writing it just feels like he's so scared to answer any of those actually interesting questions for fear that they might the answers might not actually be interesting or he might not be able to compose interesting answers so we just get stuck on lame activities that these characters are doing rather than anything that builds to anything so yeah, you get like the scene where Lyra and Will express their love at the end of the book and it feels so sudden and rushed, even though this book is literally 500 pages and somehow the romance feels rushed. How the f*** do you manage that, Philip? And it, I don't know if it's like, like, we have talked on previous episodes, or especially you have talked on previous episodes, that how that flash of first love as a child just feels so overwhelming. Kids lack experience, so they don't know any better. Obviously, those loving feelings are real, but they'll see later on, hopefully, when they fall in love with other people or whatever, that love might have been more infatuation than anything else. The love, quote-unquote, heavy, quote-unquote, between Will and Lyra feels so over the top that I want to be generous and say that that was intentional to kind of remark on that feeling of childhood love, how it can feel so large and imposing and overwhelming and feel like that is the only thing that matters in the world. But I don't know, even if... If that's what Philip actually thinks, that's not supported by the book because literally these two kids banging saves the universe. It saves the multiverse. It saves everybody. It makes dust happen again somehow. It, it, yeah. It's like you can't have it both ways. You can't be like, ha, this is so silly and childhood and immature and whatever. And they'll grow up and see and learn and know better. And also say, but it, it's also the reason why 
everything was saved in the end. It just doesn't. Well, and Ugh. it's also the reason their demons settle, too. I mean, it, just from a character standpoint, they're like, their demons settle after they've had sex and touched each other's demons. And therefore, there's that conflation of if if the demons sort of represent the spirit or the soul or however you want to put it, then that sex is somehow access touching one another's souls. <laughs> there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of sex in this series that like, I mean, I kind of uh, gestured at earlier and you said, let's be generous and <laughs> yeah, say that the, the sex about growing up, which is what it should have been. It should have been about growing up. But as you argued in the first episode, and I tried to argue against there, and I see now that you were correct in terms of Phil's opinion, he conflates growing up with sex, and that you somehow gain wisdom, knowledge, maturity, whatever, through sexual maturing, which is bullshit. It's it's really interesting because I think that, like, I am, I want to put it out there, like, yay, sex positivity. Huzzah for that. Huzzah! And I think having a sex-positive series, a series where you see two kids have their first sexual experience and it is shown as being something special and, like, important, yay. But, like, unfortunately, this swings too far the other way from... We go from, like, sex is the worst thing you can do, evil, horrible, blah. Right. To sex is the most important thing you can do. <laughs> Um, and it is so sacred and important and it literally changes the fate of the universe. And I just feel so uncomfortable with that too. Like, can we just let sex be like a thing that people do sometimes? <laughs> I would really like there to be the happy medium of like, this is a thing that people with human bodies, well, not just human bodies, people, creatures with bodies, <laughs> many creatures with bodies have sex. <laughs> and can we just let it be that? Instead of it having to be this big f***ing thing. Like, I do think, like, the kids falling in love. And, like, if if them touching each other's demons didn't become so conflated with sex, mm. I, I would say that's actually would have been a really great moment. This moment of, like, vulnerability of letting someone you love, you know, touch, you know, obviously metaphorically, but, like, in our world, but, like, in their world, literally the softest, most vulnerable, most secret, pure part of yourself, like, that could, if that was the moment that changed the flow of dust, I, I buy that. That, I mean, I would still want more explanation as to why these two particular children, or at least why Lyra, I do feel like we were cheated out of that explanation. But, like, at least then I would have been like, okay, this moment of human connection, of true connection on this soul-to-soul level. Okay. Okay. Love is, you know, love saves the world. Yay. <laughs> but it, it is very much about sex. And, and that's really uncomfortable, especially when you look at what he's also doing with sex with other characters. Certainly, like we said with Mary, that like her decision to leave the church or why she realizes she's not happy within the church is because she has a connection with a man and decides she wants to have sex with him. Which, like, is fine and valid. I'm sure there are people who leave, stop being nuns because they're like, yeah, I, I do have, you know, romantic sexual feelings for this person and I want to pursue that. But, like, again, if you put it in the broader context of the book, I'm like, really? 
<laughs> really? It couldn't be something else that she like had struggled to find this connection. Like, so there's that. And then as we've already talked about that one witch who like kills Grumman because she's burned woman in book two, which gets brought up again in this book. And Mary Mullen's like, yep, that's love. And I'm like, oh, God. And then Mrs. Coulter is a character who I love. Um, but I will say within the broader context also like is super problematic because she weaponizes her sexuality and she, (laughs) I think she's really cool. And I think again, if it wasn't for the context of the rest of this book, like I think I'd feel more comfortable with it. And maybe you can help me unpack this because I think I'm kind of struggling to like verbalize it. So We've talked about sort of her charm that she's able to to bring out. And in the first book, again, I think I was more generous because I was like, we were seeing it with children. And I was like, I think she's just like utilizing the power of being a pretty white woman, which like, to be fair, she is. But in book two and book three, we see it more used against men, like mature men or men coming of age where like they are very sexually drawn to her and she knows how to utilize that for her benefit. There's this really funny moment with the intention copter craft thing, uh, which again, you mentioned, like, what is it? It's stupid. <laughs> but like, it's this new invention that Azrael's come up with and he tests it while Mrs. Coulter's there. And she's like, oh, can you show me? Like, explain to me how it works. And I was like, girl. And the funniest thing is that the narrative is like, normally, like, he wouldn't have... You know, he would have been smarter than to show her, but he was, like, you know, flushed with victory over having made this, and he was in her power, and therefore he showed her, and then she flies off with the craft, like, boss-ass man! So there's that moment, and then, of course, there's the moment with Metatron, where she's like, don't you want to f*** me? And he's like, mm, I do. And then tricks him into going to fight Azrael, and therefore going to his death. I do think that there's something interesting about the way she... Like, her society has taught her to use herself and her body to get what she wants. And I think she's a fascinating character, but I don't think Philip Pullman is doing enough with that to not be showing mature female sexuality as this inherently bad and dangerous thing that leads men to their doom. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think... Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I love her so much! But especially, I mean, I have a a few problems with how Mrs. Coulter's portrayed in this book, especially her weird about face when it comes to Lyra that apparently just happens off screen. And I know I know exactly why Pullman did it this way. And it is obnoxious. It was so he could make the because Mrs. Coulter describes how. The reason she did not kill Lyra is because love came to her like a thief in the night. And if you're a Christian, you know exactly what that phrase means and what it's in reference to. And you know what Pullman is trying to do. Wait, explain to me. Morgan, you just need to read the Bible. (laughs) In the Bible. I've read parts of the Bible, just apparently not this part Uh, of the Bible. In the Bible, Jesus says he will come back like a thief in the night. So basically meaning you won't know the hour. You won't be able to expect it. The second coming revelations. 
yada, yada, yada. Wait, I want to just pause here and say that I love that Jesus compared himself to a thief. But let's go on. <laughs> to be fair, I do think we could get sidetracked by this, but I, Jesus really used, powerfully so, or at least as he's depicted in the Gospels, used the rhetoric of common people, and he would often mm. hang out with thieves, prostitutes, right. tax collectors, the worst of the worst people. <laughs> I, I'm not joking about the tax collectors. No, I know. But um, it is this thing where he's connecting himself to these lower class individuals. Pullman takes that line that's so interesting and once again just mangles it for his own purposes. But anyway, this is totally a tangent. What's weird about it is that the ultimate message from this book is that sex is great and it's the key to everything. But if that's the message, then you get into these weird kind of situations of like, well, if sex is inherently great, then why isn't everyone just having it? And you get these weird moments of like, does that then make it bad that Mrs. Coulter is leading men on, but not actually giving them sex? Because if sex is the best thing, then withholding sex is the worst thing you can do. And that's a really, really uncomfortable message. And it's one that's inconsistent with this book because, oh God, we're going to have to talk about this. The, the depiction of the magisterium is so god-awful. It's so cartoonish that it's absurd. Hello. Casey here interrupting the podcast. <sighs> so just as a heads up, Morgan and I will be discussing child molestation as depicted in this book and in regards to the Catholic Church. If you would prefer to skip that conversation, simply skip the rest of this episode and pick up again with us next week. The implication is basically that everybody in the magisterium is just a sex pervert and they all just want the little kids to like touch and molest. And, and it's just like, oh, Philip, like there's do you remember that scene with the um the vodka with the weird random priest gives yeah. Will vodka and it's like very much implied he wants to him. Yeah, it's like, OK. No, I'm, I'm sorry. My point being, if sex is the best thing you can do, you start to get into some very, very, very uncomfortable questions with pedophiles in this book, right? Yeah. So Philip Pullman has an interesting relationship. Okay, so I will say, like, in book two, I thought... The way Sir Charles is initially introduced, staring at Lyra mm. and talking to Lyra in the museum and before we realize he's Lord Boreal. I don't know if you got those vibes too. It comes across very pedophile -y. 
Yeah. So that happens, and that feels very pedophile It's the same with the priest in here. Um, and yeah, Mrs. Coulter makes some reference about, like, because when she's going back to try and re-infiltrate the magisterium for Azrael Sai, they're asked, like, why didn't you bring Lyra to us? And she's like, and let all you people with your obsession with sexuality, like, get all up in her my business, my, like, growing, maturing daughter, no way in hell. So, like, yeah, like you said, there is that kind of, Reference. And I will say, so there's a sequel series to Hysteric Materials that is currently coming out. I think it's like prequel sequel, because I think the first book is a prequel and then the second book is a sequel, but it's going to be a trilogy and blah, blah. I have not read it. I'm not interested in reading it. I have not been ever interested in reading it, even before we did this reread, um, because I've heard that it's not good. <laughs> But one of the things I have heard is that in the second book, where, you know, fire, following, like, I think, I forget how old Lyra is, like, I think late teens, and that there is an instance of attempted sexual assault of Lyra <sighs> as a plot moment. And I've just, like, heard some stuff about that, um, and also her other romantic relationship in the series that is just kind of like, huh. There does seem to be, like, I. there's absolutely no reason, as you said, that for that scene with Will and that priest to exist. It does not further the plot in any way, shape, or form. But there is, does seem to, Philip Pullman does seem to have some sort of, like, mild obsession with putting characters in these very uncomfortable situations. And I don't know why. Or what he's what message he's trying to bring with that, but yeah, it just feels very. I mean, I think for me, like I don't think he's trying. Like the message of the book is ever coming off as like withholding sex is the worst thing ever. I think it's just that he clearly like wants to detangle, like what he believes the church has done to sex and destigmatize it, which is a worthy goal. But he actually hasn't fully done the work on that himself. Mm. therefore like you know has the mrs coulter situation which like I, I will argue clearly the way mrs coulter is shown using her sexuality is shown as a bad thing yeah uh i don't think the narrative is pro how she uses her sexuality there's a moment in a conversation that i do actually find very interesting but there's a moment where mrs coulter is talking to azrael and she's like we should have just gotten married and raised her which is a really interesting character moment. And like, again, I really like their discussion. But I think that the narrative agrees that they should have gotten married. Then Mrs. Coulter would only be banging Azrael and not <laughs> using her sexuality outside of that. Which is, I'm like, that's very churchy of you, Philip Pullman. And then, yeah, these like weird, uncomfortable sexual situations, which are, like you said, often tied back to the church. Which, yes, I think seem to be Philip Pullman kind of glancing at uh, the Catholic Church in our world the various scandals that have happened with pedophilia. But, like, he doesn't really do things with that. I mean, I think he did a much better job in talking about uh, the Catholic Church's previous instances of... Um, I'm now forgetting words again. <laughs> like, the metaphor of, like, cutting away the dreamings, the sort of, like, oh, similar the to... Lord As Castration, thank you. Even though I think that one's sloppy too, at least it's it's a little bit better done. Um, but yeah, so it's it's this whole book really or series. It shows that Philip Pullman. I think his ambitions were good. 
I think his ambitions with this series were really interesting. And I I won't say he's a coward necessarily the way you are. (laughs) I just don't think he has done enough thinking himself to really be able to fully grapple with the ideas he wants to grapple with. Like he doesn't seem to have escaped the churches or like what our society um, because of the dominance of Christianity has indoctrinated in us. I don't think he's escaped that. I don't think he's beyond that, but I think he thinks he is. And that's kind of the issue. And that's why like, yeah, I don't know. There's just so much like weirdness about sex and sexuality. Stick around for part two and the end to this hot mess of a trilogy next week on Reread. See you then. You and I made worship.